Okay, so we are picking up in our study on the subject of soteriology. Remember that the uh, word soteriology derives from two Greek words, soter, which means savior, and logos, which means the study of or a word about something. And so this is the study of salvation. And we are looking at this, we're, we're taking a really deep dive into this and really unpacking a lot of this. And really, uh, the things that we're studying here might be comparable to um, a master's level course in a seminary. Uh, we're, we're really digging into this. So, so this is, uh, uh, this is um, material often you won't find uh, in other places. Uh, so it's a small audience, I think, that we're appealing to, but that's fine. And one of the things that I've focused on in the past and been trying to pull in is looking at uh, all three members of the Godhead related to soteriology. We talked about how God the Father from eternity past planned our salvation, how he commissioned the Son, he sent the Son, and at a point in time nearly 2,000 years ago, the second member of the Trinity, God the Son, came into the world and took upon himself humanity. He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, uh, supernaturally, by means of God the Holy Spirit. And uh, when he came into this world, he came into this world uh, as the theanthropic person, as the God-man. He was and is undiminished deity combined together forever with perfect humanity. Uh, remember that in theology we call this the doctrine of the hypostatic union. And uh, Jesus, when he walked on the earth, lived an absolutely righteous life. He committed no sin. And so being supernaturally conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and the fact that he did not have a biological father, meant that Adam's original sin was not imputed to him, nor did he have a sin nature. So then the objective for him was to go through his entire life, his human life, uh, without committing any personal sin. And of course, the devil gave his best shot. Uh, to try to tempt him into sin, but Jesus was victorious in life, and he was victorious at the cross. And so Jesus lived an absolutely sinless life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Hebrews 4.15, uh, 1 John 3.5, and other passages make it very clear that Jesus uh, knew no sin, committed no sin, and in him there was no sin. When he went to the cross, he accomplished our salvation. We looked at his trials, we looked at his suffering, we looked at his beatings, his mocking, the scourging, the crucifixion itself, what happened at the cross, uh, and that he was crucified at 9 a.m., and then from noon to 3, the sky grew dark, and it was during that time that all of our sin was placed upon him, and he was judged in our place, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, Second Peter 3.18 tells us, or First Peter 3.18 tells us. And so... When we understand the fact that, uh, that he accomplished our salvation at the cross and that it was finished at the cross, and then the last thing he said was to telestai in the Greek, which is translated as it is finished. And so our salvation was finished at the cross uh, completely. And then Jesus exhaled, he did not inhale, and he gave up his spirit. We know that his body was placed in a grave and that on the third day he was resurrected. And then 40 days later, after his resurrection, he ascended bodily into heaven where he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father uh, in session uh, for the saints. 
And so we've talked about the work of Christ, and now we've moved into the section to where we're really looking at words related to the subject of soteriology. Now, uh, early on, we talked about adoption. Uh, We talked about deliverance from sin last time. And uh, I did not talk about, there's other words that I've not included in this series of uh, terminology, like the word atonement uh, or assurance of salvation, only because we covered that in, in past lessons. So I'm trying to cover new ground here. Now in today's lesson, we're going to talk about eternal life, and then we're also going to talk about the doctrine of expiation, uh, something that is not commonly taught Uh, in many circles, at least not that I'm aware of. So let's talk about eternal life. Now John wrote in John 3.15 that whoever believes in him uh, uh, will in him have eternal life. And John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And, of course, Jesus pointed others to himself, such as in John 6, 40. He says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And John six forty seven, Jesus said, And truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life, has eternal life. Now, another passage that I've hit on is John chapter 10, verse 28, where Jesus says, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Now, one of the things that I pointed out was the use of the word didomi, which is here translated as I give, I give. And it translates the Greek uh, verb didomi, which in this context is a present active indicative. And one of the things that I've talked about before, and we're going to hit it here again, and that is eternal life is a right now truth. It is something we are in possession of. Now, one of the things I'm going to talk about here is that eternal life does not relate only to uh, the uh, duration of our existence, that we will spend forever in heaven with God, that we have this life uh, that is um, eternal in nature. But there's also a qualitative aspect to eternal life, and we'll talk about that here in a little bit. But notice Jesus says, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Now, the verb here is in the present tense, which means that it is a right now truth. Eternal life is not what we can have. It's what we have at the moment of faith in Christ. The active voice means the subject produces the action of the verb. That is, Jesus here is the one who gives eternal life. He says, and I give eternal life. And the indicative mood is simply declarative for a statement of fact. And uh, and so this is a truth. And so... Uh, going back to John 6:47, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, notice he says, has eternal life. Now, when Jesus was saying that the believer has eternal life in John 6:47, uh, Jesus used the Greek verb echo, echo, which means to have, to hold, or to possess. To have, to hold, or to possess. 
Now, in this context, when he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me has eternal life. Notice here, again, that the verb is present, active, and indicative. The present tense means it is a right now truth. And that is something that we need to come to understand, that eternal life is not what we can have. And and I say that because when I was younger in the faith, I'm talking about 35 years ago, I used to have the idea that eternal life did not, that you really didn't come into possession of it until you left this world and entered into heaven. Uh, but I failed to understand the biblical teaching. And so the more that I've looked at this, the more the grammar of the text really points out that, that it is a right now truth. And so eternal life is what the believer possesses at the moment of faith in Christ. It is what we possess at the moment of faith in Christ. Now, this eternal life uh, is connected with Jesus Christ. It is connected with Jesus Christ. John wrote in John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, he said, uh, and, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, that this life is in his Son. And notice that he says in verse 12, he who has the Son has the life. And so clearly it is connected with our relationship with God the Son. He who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life, that is, eternal life. Now, I'm going to move on here a little bit down, because in verse 13, John talks about the assurance of salvation. And John says, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, what's fascinating to me is when he says, These things I have written to you, uh, this means that the language that John was employing uh, served as a reliable vehicle for the expression of the ideas that he was wanting to communicate to them. And he says, These things I have written to you, notice, who believe in the name of the Son of God. And the purpose of that was so that, sets up a purpose clause here, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So having eternal life uh, is not a guessing game. When one believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are said to be in Christ, and Christ is in us, we have the Son. He dwells within us, as does the Father, as does the Holy Spirit. We have the Son, and because we have the Son, we have uh, the life, that is, the eternal life. So again, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has the life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Now, we should also understand that eternal life does not merely refer to our unending existence in which we spend eternity with God in heaven. But we should understand that there is a qualitative dimension to it. Notice Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, he said, "...the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy." I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then we have a very interesting statement in John 17, 3, where Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. 
Again, this is eternal life, that they may know you. So there is a, a qualitative aspect to it. We might say an experiential aspect to this life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, I have this quote here by Merrill C. Tenney, and this is taken from the um, um, Expositors, which I have up here on my wall behind me, the, the black and blue set, a good volume set. Uh, but it's taken from the Expositor's Bible Commentary on John and Acts. And Merrill C. Tenney has an interesting quote here. He says, um, eternal life, he says, eternal, the new life God gives refers not solely to the duration of existence, but also to the quality of life as contrasted with futility. He goes on, he says, it is a deepening and growing experience. It can never be exhausted in any measurable span of time, but it produces a new quality of life, end quote. Now, I find that very interesting, and I think he's correct. So again, let me read from him here again. He says, Eternal, the new life God gives, refers not solely to the duration of existence, but also to the quality of life as contrasted with futility. Now, I find that choice of words very interesting because without God, really, life is futile. It really is meaningless. We might say purposeless. And, uh, and this is one of the things that contrasts uh, biblical theism with atheism. And I wrote an article a few years ago um, in which I talked about the hope of Christianity and the despair of atheism. And when you study atheists who, who really think through, I'm not talking about the casual atheist, I'm talking about somebody who really thinks through their atheism. Really, it leads, uh, for many, to a place of despair. And this is why uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, uh, Albert Camus, and others uh, established existentialism, existential philosophy back in the 60s became quite popular. But it was an attempt to try to remove this sense of despair uh, what they called angst, uh, this anxiety that man has about life, because without God, life really, life really is meaningless, and it's very futile. Uh, there's no substance to it. There's no purpose for being, because really, if you buy into atheism, then what you say is, is that the universe came into being purely by chance, that we live in a closed universe, and that's what the atheist argues, that we live in a closed universe, and that there is, no, there is no God, therefore there's nobody uh, acting in the universe. It's a closed system. Now, now, biblical Christianity says that we live in an open universe, and that God is acting in mankind, in the, in the affairs of mankind, on a daily basis. In fact, you read that all throughout the Bible. That's, that's the clear teaching. But atheism would say that everything that came into being is the product of matter, motion, time, and chance, that you have this big bang, and matter was created, and it was expanded out. It was uh, pushed out across the universe, and the universe is quite large. Uh, on the conservative side, I've heard it said that there's roughly 100 billion stars in our galaxy, uh, and that there's roughly 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. I heard somebody go as high as 400 billion galaxies. Nobody really knows. We just know that it's really, really big. And, uh, and when you think about that, and to think that all that came into being is merely the product of matter, motion, time, and chance. And you have to have matter set in motion for chemistry to work. 
And then you need time and you need deep time and you need chance, but it would argue that all of life with all of its beauty and complexity uh, right down to the molecular level is merely the product of chance. Just matter, motion, time, deep time, and chance. But what that would say is, is that really we come from nothing and we go to nothing. We're just the accidental collection of molecules, evolving bags of protoplasm, that we come from the goo to the zoo to you, to borrow a phrase from Norman Geisler, uh, and that really man comes from nothing significant, is nothing significant, and goes to nothing significant, and that really reduces man to just a zero, because there's no reason for us to exist. There's no more reason for us to exist than a rock, a bird, a fish, or a worm on a hook. There's absolutely no reason for mankind to exist. And it just says that really uh, life is just a big joke, you know, and I've even heard people refer to it that way. But, but it really reduces man to a place of despair because there's no purpose to life. There's no meaning to life. Now, the Bible teaches that God does exist. It starts off with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and so God brought everything into being. And he created the earth to, to have design and beauty and complexity. And he created mankind in his image. We are made in the image of God. Selim is the Hebrew word. And so we are made in the very image of God. And so God designed man, and he, he created man with a purpose that Adam and Eve were to function as theocratic administrators, over the earth. They were to rule over the creation as finite analogs to God. And so mankind was created in the image of God. Now we are fallen, uh, and you know, to use a phrase, that the image is effaced but not erased. It's, it's, it's been damaged by sin, but it's still there. We're still image bearers. And so mankind has value because God created us in his image. And therefore, we have purpose in this world. Now, that finds its greatest expression when we enter into a relationship with God, when we believe in Christ, we have forgiveness of sins, we have eternal life, the gift of righteousness, we become children of God, brothers and sisters to the King of kings and Lord of lords, we are part of the royal family of God, and this creates within us a personal sense of destiny because we are tied and our lives have meaning and significance because we are tied to the infinite personal creator God who calls us into a relationship with him and, and gives us uh, a life of, that we have purpose in this world. And so that is part of the experience of what it means to have eternal life. So when he says that eternal life, eternal, the new life God gives, refers not solely to the duration of existence, but also to the quality of life as contrasted with futility. Because ultimately, if you throw out God, if you don't have a relationship with God, then what you're left with is to do the best that you can in this life. Now, for the unbeliever, this is about as close to heaven as they're going to get, because what follows is going to be hell. Now, for the believer, this is about as worse as it gets, because what follows for us is pure bliss in the eternal state. And so, eternal life finds its greatest expression when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state, but it is nonetheless not only a right now truth that we possess it, but as we begin to grow in our walk with the Lord, it begins to manifest itself right now. And so there's a qualitative aspect to it. Now he goes on, he says it is a deepening and growing experience. I would agree with that. 
I would absolutely agree with that. Because when we talk about having that new life within us, uh, it regenerates us. I mean, we are literally born again. We have new life. And as we begin to walk in our relationship with the Lord, as we begin to learn the Word of God and we begin to plug the Word of God into our everyday life and we begin to live out the Christian life, we really begin to understand what it means to have this new life within us. Now he goes on, he says, it can never be exhausted in any measurable span of time, but it introduces a totally new quality of life. And again, I would agree with him here. I think he's absolutely spot on. I like Tenney. I like Merrill C. Tenney. I've read a lot of his stuff and I find myself quoting him quite a bit. He's, he's a pretty solid teacher. Um, but I, I agree with his statement here. And you'll see others that will say similar things. Now, going on in the notes here, it is entirely, in its entirety, uh, we should understand that eternal life is a free gift offered by God to those who trust in Christ as Savior. And remember that salvation is always a gift. It is always a gift to us. Remember Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not as a result of work, so that no one should boast. Now, uh, it is a free gift offered by God to those who trust in Christ as Savior, um, and it is an experience to be enjoyed now and a future reward for a life of sacrifice. So there's multiple dimensions to eternal life, and, and I think of that compared perhaps to salvation, because when you study salvation, salvation exists in three tenses, or in three phases, we talk about uh, phase one in which we are saved from the penalty of sin, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ, that we are saved from the penalty of sin, that's our justification. Phase two is our sanctification, that is where we are being saved from the power of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And then the final phase of salvation is when we will be saved in the future, and that has to do with our glorification in which uh, the sin nature is removed. Okay, so we no longer have a sin nature from the presence of sin. So we are saved from the penalty of sin, phase one. We are saved from the power of sin, phase two, that's our Christian life. And we will be saved from the presence of sin, phase three, that's our glorification. These are broken down into the three uh, theological words. Our justification, that's an act that occurs at a moment in time. Uh, it's a one-and-done event. At the moment of faith in Christ, all of our sins are, are removed. We receive eternal life. We receive the gift of righteousness. And at that moment, we are forever declared just in the eyes of God. Uh, phase two of the Christian life is our sanctification. So we have justification, sanctification. That's a process where we are moving in our walk with the Lord and we are advancing towards spiritual maturity. And then th phase three is our glorification. Well, I find similar aspects to that uh, to eternal life, that there is eternal life in the sense of something we possess right now. There is an experiential aspect to that, and there is an eternal aspect to that when we leave this world and enter into the eternal state. So as we advance spiritually in our walk with the Lord, by learning His Word, being filled with the Spirit, walking obediently by faith, praying often, developing an attitude of gratitude, fellowshipping with other believers, engaging in worship, and allowing trials to shape us spiritually, we will experience what Paul told Timothy when he instructed him in 1 Timothy 
when he said, fight the good fight, notice what he says here, and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. So eternal life uh, here in this context refers to the experiential aspect of eternal life, that, uh, that he tells Timothy to take hold of it, the eternal life to which you were called. Now, th- this is the eternal life as it, fa- as it plays out in our Christian life uh, as we advance spiritually with the Lord. Now, this is all part of our uh, taking in the Word of God and applying the Word of God. Remember 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Study to show yourself approved unto God as a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. It's profitable to you for doctrine, that is for teaching, for reproof, because we need to be corrected, for reproof, uh, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be mature, thoroughly equipped unto all good works. 1 Peter 2.2, we are told to, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to your salvation, that you may grow in respect to your salvation. 2 Peter 3.18 tells us to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, we cannot live what we do not know. And so learning God's word necessarily precedes living God's will. It's always that two-step process. And you think of passages like in Matthew 7, uh, 24 and following, where Jesus said, the man who hears my words, that's the intake of the word of God. That's the acquisition of divine viewpoint. So the man who hears my words and does them, that's phase two. That's the application of God's word to everyday life and does them. He shall be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock, notice upon a stable foundation. And when the storm comes, and listen, the storms of life come, that house will stand uh, because that wise believer not only took in the word of God, but applied it to everyday life. And listen, having it is no guarantee that you'll live it. We've talked about this before. That's why James 1.22 says, Be ye doers of the word and not merely hearers only, because it is possible to take in the word of God and not to apply it. Uh, So we have to be willing to apply it. Now, Jesus goes on in Matthew 7, where he says, The man who hears my words and does not do them. Well, here we have somebody who takes in the word of God, but they never apply it. And I see this, and trust me, I've been guilty of this too. And I, I see where I failed, and I look back, and, and I think, oh, well, you, messed, you, you missed it. You know, you had the Word of God, you failed to apply it, uh, and so you stumbled along, and you, uh, you, know, you did a crash and burn. But it is possible, nonetheless, to have the Word of God and not apply it. That's absolutely true. But Jesus says to the man who hears my words and does not do them, You see, does not put them into practice, does not apply them. He is like the foolish man who built his house upon the sand, something unstable. And when the storm comes, and it comes, it crashed against that house, and the house fell. The house could not stand, you see. And so taking in the Word of God and applying it to everyday life uh, gives us a stability. Now, one of the things that I've talked about before is that when we take in the Word of God and we begin to apply it to our lives, again, it creates that stability within us. 
And remember that the stability of an individual, of a Christian in particular, that the stability of the Christian is predicated to a large degree on the biblical content and continuity of a person's thinking. Let me say that again. The stability of the Christian is predicated to a large degree on the biblical content, what he thinks, what she thinks. It is predicated on the biblical content and continuity of a person's thinking. You see, it's not just enough to have divine viewpoint. You have to keep on having divine viewpoint. You have to keep on thinking divine viewpoint. You have to keep taking it in, and you have to let it circulate in the stream of your consciousness. Now, this takes time. This takes time. This doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it takes years and probably thousands of hours of Bible study. And, uh, and I, was, I was thinking about this earlier today when I was doing a Bible lesson because I was thinking about Romans 12, 1 and 2 where we are told by Paul, he says, do not be conformed to this world. That is, do not be pressed into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, by the renewing of your mind. Because what happens is, is prior to coming to faith in Christ, we may not have heard the gospel, we may not have been exposed to any form of Bible teaching. And so what happens is, at the moment of faith in Christ, we begin a starting point in our Christian life. And we have an opportunity uh, to really make some good headway and to advance to spiritual maturity and to live out this new quality of life that we have. And, uh, and so, but it requires us to spend many years expunging, that is eradicating, removing that human viewpoint that saturated our thinking up until the time that we really got saved and really got into studying the Word of God. And so what happens is, is we wind up taking in all this human viewpoint through television, uh, by watching all these human viewpoint shows and news, and uh, through literature, through things that we read, and through music, and through conversations, and we take in all this viewpoint. We take it in, we take it in, we take it in, it jams into our thinking, and all of life is framed from the human viewpoint perspective. And so what happens is, is as we begin to take in the Word of God, Little by little, our thinking, our mind begins to become recalibrated. It becomes recalibrated, uh, properly calibrated, we might say, according to the standard of God's Word. And so we take in the Word of God and, we remo- and, and, the, and the human viewpoint is expunged, it's removed. Little by little, this is a process, takes time, but uh, the human viewpoint is removed and it is replaced with divine viewpoint. And we begin to frame life from the divine perspective. We begin to think God's thoughts after him. And as we begin to take in more and more and more of the word of God, we are able to make sense of the world. And we understand that everything, it it literally shapes our whole worldview is what it does. It shapes our whole worldview because we understand that everything uh, came into existence because God brought it into existence in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth, that he created everything to have uh, beauty, and form and function. He created the animals and the plants and the birds and the fish. Uh, He created everything. Everything has a purpose in this life because God created it to have purpose. And he created mankind, and we understand the origin of sin. Through the Bible, we understand that angels exist, that there are holy and righteous angels, there are sinful angels, uh, that Satan is the leader of this sinful group, these, these demons, these evil spirits, these wicked spirits, and that they too are operating in the affairs of mankind. We understand that since the fall of Adam and Eve, that Satan has taken possession of this world, that he is the ruler of this world, three times that's said by Jesus in the Gospel of John, uh, that he is called the prince of the power of the air, and he Ephesians 2, uh, that he's called the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. 
that 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And uh, Isaiah 14 tells us that he deceives the nations. And Revelation 12.9 says he deceives the whole world. And so we know that when we see evil and corruption and rioting and, and all sorts of political corruption and economic corruption, we know that that doesn't just extend to the human realm. We know that there's things going on in the invisible realm because God's word tells us these things. It helps us literally to frame life from the divine perspective. And so we learn to frame life uh, from the biblical perspective and we make sense of things for really for the first time in our life and our whole thinking becomes recalibrated. But as we begin to apply these things, as we begin to live these things out in our everyday life and we're making sense of the world and ourselves and we are advancing to spiritual maturity and we are laying hold of the blessings that God has for us in time, that portfolio of spiritual assets, which we covered here uh, a few weeks ago when I talked about the many blessings that we enjoy as Christians, all of these things begin to uh, uh, begin to uh, uh, take part of our everyday experience. And it plays out in our relationships. It plays out in our work. It plays out in how we handle our finances. It plays out in, in our political views. It literally frames life from the divine perspective. And that is part of what it means here that we are experiencing this new life that we have. Because again, eternal life is not just something uh, that is eternal in its duration. There is a qualitative aspect to it. But really that is fully experienced only by the believer who is advancing to spiritual maturity. Now that means that this believer is somebody who devotes themselves to God, to the study of his word, and is willing to really dig and really dig into the Word of God and really take some of these things that are taught at a, at a deeper level and really begin to apply them and really begin to apply them in everyday life. And by the way, there's a I was talking with a, a, another believer uh, a couple days ago. We were I was at work, and there's a young man there that I have a lot of respect for, and we were having a theological discussion, and I was talking about the mechanics of the Christian life. Now, that may not be the best word. I probably have to find a better word down the road, but for lack of a better word, that's the one that keeps coming up in my thinking. But when I think about the Christian life, to some degree, I think of it as mechanical, now that seems cold, and I don't mean for it to, to be that way, because it's not. Uh, but what I mean by it is just, if, if I am faithful, if I just simply follow the process, that it will do its work in me. That if I am just simply faithful, if I'm dedicated, if I'm committed... Uh, if I have discipline, that's another word that comes to mind. If I have the discipline to really stay the course, to study the word of God and to apply it to my life, it will yield results because it's this whole concept of sowing and reaping, sowing and reaping. What you sow is what you reap and garbage in is garbage out and good in is good out. And much of the Christian life, again, is predicated on, on what we put in, how we, how we live out the Christian life. And listen, if I'm a farmer... And, uh, and to use the illustration of sowing and reaping, let's say I lived 2,000 years ago and I'm a farmer and I plowed up my field and I get out there with the seed and I begin to sow the seed. Well, if I'm happy while I'm sowing the seed, it doesn't matter. If I'm sad when I'm sowing the seed, it doesn't matter. If, uh, if the sun is uh, shining, if it's raining, it doesn't matter. If I've got a 102 degree fever and I'm, I'm, I'm sick with the flu, it doesn't matter. If I put that seed in that ground 
and assuming that everything else is fine, there will be growth, there will be life, that, that reaping will come about. And it's just simply the mechanical process of sowing and reaping. And, uh, and again, I probably need to find a better uh, choice of words for that. But the point is, is that when we take in the Word of God, when we take it in, take it in, take it in, take it in, and then we apply it to everyday life, when I apply it to my wife, when I apply it to my work, uh, because somebody says or does something that offends me at work because they're uh, filled with human viewpoint toxicity in their soul. And so they say something out of arrogance. Uh, well, I know Proverbs 19.11 says it is to the glory of a man to overlook an offense. And so I take the word of God and I apply it to that situation. And I say, okay, well, I didn't like what you had to say. That was kind of condescending. It's what I say to myself. But then I say grace to you. And I just simply let the matter go. I also know that when somebody comes at me with a degree of hostility, I also understand the proverb that says a kind word turns away wrath. A kind word turns away wrath. So I may have a firestorm going on in my soul, but I am going to be calm in how I respond to that person because I know the principle that a calm answer turns away wrath. And if I just simply apply the word, if I simply go through the process of applying the word of God in those situations by faith, and by the way, this is always a faith response. It's always what we do by faith, not feelings, because we understand the word and we are obedient to the word. But when I go through that process, I find that it yields results every time. Every time. I just have to be faithful. And, and again, I, I keep coming up with the word mechanical. I may need to try to find a better word. So if you have one, help me. Uh, but that's the word I keep coming up with. But if I am just simply faithful to go through the steps, it will yield the results. And that's true in relationships. It's true across the board and whatever I happen to be uh, living out in my Christian life at that particular moment. So again, it's, it's this eternal life that is, that is being uh, born out in me experientially as I am advancing in my walk with the Lord. And just like when, uh, you know, and again, this has to do with learning the word. It has to be uh, filled with the word. It has to be with walking in obedience by faith. I think of 2 Corinthians 5, 7, where Paul says, For we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by faith and not by sight. That is the Christian life. Hebrews 10, 38, God says, But my righteous one shall live by faith. And I like Romans 10, 17, which says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing. So you have to be exposed to it. So you take in the word of God. You hear the teaching of the word of God. You take it in. It assimilates into your thinking and then you apply it out. So again, my righteous one shall live by faith, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So again, we're taking it in, we're learning it, and then we begin to experience uh, this aspect of our life, which is a, a, an aspect of eternal life. It's this new quality of life that we have. And so, see, and this is part of what it means. Uh, to have this eternal life within us. I think of in James 1, 2 through 4, this is another passage that I've had to apply over the years, where James says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I'll tell you, this verse, uh, and a few others, but this one was a core verse for me, 
a few years ago when I had a situation at work where I had a, a person I was working with who was uh, a very toxic on steroids. I mean, just, I mean, I've never encountered anybody like this person. And uh, she was just a real pill. I mean, she was just, and, uh, and hostile towards me. I mean, I think there was some demonic at work going on there. And, uh, and I prayed for the Lord to remove her uh, many times, uh, just like Paul prayed for his thorn in the flesh to be removed. But I realize uh, that what the Lord does not remove, he intends for me to deal with. And so I began to see this person from the divine perspective. And I said, all right, God, you've put this person in my life. You've allowed this to happen. And, uh, and there's some reason you're teaching me something. You're helping me to grow. And I realized that God sometimes sends us into the furnace of affliction in order that he might, uh, that he might burn away the dross of weak character and to refine the golden qualities that he wants to see in us. And so we go through this refining process where God sends us into these trials. And anytime God turns up the heat, he never takes his hand off the thermostat. He is always in control of whatever it is that we're struggling with. Now, what is my response to be when I encounter uh, these trials in my life? Well, my response is to be to consider it or count it all joy. Uh, now, this is a faith response. Feelings have nothing to do with this. Absolutely zero. In fact, my feelings uh, toward this person uh, was, I was very upset half the time. And I tried being nice and it just, everything I did just kept being met with toxicity. Now, that eventually phased, but it took about eight months, eight months for me to really endure this person. But every time when I was driving into work, I would pray. I'd still do today. It's about a 20-minute drive for me to get to work, so I pray the whole time. But as I would drive into work, I would literally pray to God, and I would say, Father, thank you for this person. I'm going to count it all joy. He says, count it all joy, my brethren, when, not if, when you encounter various trials. And the word various there translates the Greek word uh, poikilois, poikilois, and it means it's a word we get in English is polka dot, and it means it comes in varieties of shapes and colors, but there's a variety of trials. Poikilois uh, perosmos is the word for trial there. And so we experience all of these trials in life. And how are we to handle those trials? Well, we handle them by faith. Uh, so count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, and knowing here is a causal participle uh, from the Greek verb gnosko, uh, and it's a part, uh, causal participle, and so we might say because you know something. Because you know what? You know that the testing of your faith produces something in you. It produces endurance. You see, and God is more concerned, I realize this, that God was more concerned with my Christian character than he was with my creaturely comforts. He was more concerned with my Christian character than he was with my creaturely comforts. I wanted the creaturely comforts. God said, no, no, uh, you, we need to refine you a little bit. And so here's this difficulty uh, that you're going to have to face, and uh, you need to apply some doctrine. You need to apply the Word of God to this situation. So I did. So I applied every day in my mind. I went through this process probably a dozen times in a day where I would literally thank God for this person. 
and I understood that the testing of my faith was, was designed to produce endurance. It was designed to develop me because just like you go to the gym and you work out and what do they say? No pain, no gain, right? So you go and you are being developed. Well, this is true spiritually. And so God allows us to face trials and we can pray for God to take him away. But again, what he does not remove, he intends for us to deal with. And he says, and let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, the point is, is that we will advance to spiritual maturity, that we will advance to spiritual maturity because that's what God wants from us, you see. And that's why over here in 1 Timothy 6, 12, God says, uh, excuse me, Paul says to Timothy, fight the good fight of what? Of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. It is a fight. And listen, you're going to have to struggle. You're going to have to struggle with your own thoughts. You're going to have to struggle with your own feelings. But at the end of the day, learning the word of God, applying the word of God is fighting the good fight of faith. And notice what the what 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 you're doing there. He says, "Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Take hold of it." You see? And so this experiential aspect of eternal life is is born out in the Christian who is advancing spiritually and who is fighting the good fight of faith. Now, this is the quality of life. This is the quality of life that believers who in time operate with positive volition toward God as their divine parent and they obey his directives to advance to spiritual maturity. Because that's what God wants from us. You see, God is not raising children. He's not raising children to be children. Now, he's raising children, but he wants us to grow up. He wants us to reach the place of spiritual maturity. And this only occurs over time as we take in the Word of God and we apply it to our lives. But you see, eternal life that we came to possess, again, is not only eternal in its duration, but we have to understand that there is, again, that qualitative aspect of the Christian life. Warren Wearsby says, quote, we have eternal life and need to take hold of it and let it work in our experience, end quote. But you see, this is the understanding. Uh, William McDonald, in his Bible Knowledge Commentary, he says he is to lay hold on eternal life. He says this does not mean that he is to strive for salvation. That is already his possession. But here the thought is to live out in daily practice, the eternal life, which was already his. Again, the thought here is to live out in daily practice, the eternal life, which was already his. So there's an experiential aspect to eternal life. Joseph Dillow, uh, and here I'm citing him uh, from his book called uh, Final Destiny, The Future Reign of the Servant Kings. He says, quote, Possessing eternal life is one thing in the sense of initial entrance, uh, but taking hold of it is another. He says the former is static, but the latter is dynamic. The former depends on God, but the latter depends on us. The former comes through faith alone. Taking hold requires faith plus keeping commandments. So those who are rich, he goes on to say, those who are rich in this world and who give generously will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And that's a quote from 1 Timothy 6, 19. Dillo closes out here. He says, eternal life 
is not only the gift of regeneration, it is also true life that is cultivated by faith and acts of obedience. You see that? And so this, uh, this adds an element to eternal life uh, that many times is really not taught, and that is the experiential aspect of it. And it really adds to a richness of life. It will forever change us as we begin to take in the Word of God, as it begins to assimilate into our thinking and flow in the stream of our consciousness, and we begin to live out the Christian life, and we really begin to take hold uh, of that eternal life by fighting the good fight of faith, we will understand the experiential aspect of that uh, eternal life. And so I spent a little more time on that than I intended, but that's all right. That's all right. Uh, so let me move now into the subject of expiation. Expiation. Now this is fairly straightforward, so this won't take long to get through. Uh, but the doctrine of expiation uh, is closely related to propitiation. Now propitiation is a, is a word that we're going to spend some time on here in a few weeks. It's going to be its own lesson. But propitiation is a word, uh, translates the Greek halosmos, and it just simply means satisfaction. So expiation is closely related to propitiation. Propitiation means satisfaction and refers to God the Father's approval of the death of Christ on behalf of sinners. Expiation emphasizes the removal of sin as well as its guilt and punishment. So when we think of expiation, we should think of the removal of sin. In the Old Testament, when one looked at the sacrificial system, for example, uh, the sacrificial system was repeated day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, for centuries. But as the writer to the Hebrews makes very clear, these sacrifices never took away sin. Uh, in fact, if you study atonement in the Old Testament, the Hebrew verb kafar means to cover. And it's the idea that when one brought the animal sacrifice, by the way, the animal sacrifice itself did not save you. It was didactic. It was intended to instruct you. It was intended you to, to realize that God is holy, that mankind is, is sinful, and that God must punish sin. Now, he's either going to punish it in the offender or he's going to punish it in a substitute. And the lamb, the spotless lamb that was brought, the unblemished lamb, was a picture of Christ. And so when one brought the lamb, one would understand that God uh, was providing a substitute. Now, they may not have fully understood all the details, but by the time you get to John 1.29, John the Baptist, when he identifies Jesus, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Notice that. He's the Lamb of God. And of course, when everybody turned around, they saw Jesus. And when John pointed to Jesus, he identified him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, again, go back to the Old Testament, that the sacrificial system was temporary. It was just a covering for sin. It was a temporary arrangement. Um, but it pointed forward to the future work of Christ. Now, because God is holy and just, sin is an offense that demands his punishment. And according to John Stott, he says that God's wrath refers to, quote, his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations, end quote. Now, by means of the penal substitutionary atoning death of Jesus, God's wrath is satisfied concerning his righteous demands for our sin. 
And so, and when we turn to Christ as Savior, all of our sins at that moment are said to be forgiven. You see, Ephesians 1 7 says, In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. And redemption has the idea of purchasing, of paying a price. And so we have redemption through his blood. And remember, as I mentioned before, that the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ is the coin of the heavenly realm. It is the only currency that God accepts as payment for our sin debt. Uh, no good works, no, no anything we do, uh, no amount of good works or penance uh, will ever uh, bring about satisfaction with God in heaven. It is only by the blood of Christ that we have forgiveness of sins. And uh, Jesus is, quote, according to John 1, the Lamb of God, again, who takes away the sin of the world. And when you think of expiation, you should think of the actual removal, not the temporary covering, but the actual removal of sins. 1 John 3, 5 says, we know that he appeared in order to what? In order to take away sins. Now, this is something that we understand because the word of God reveals it and we accept it by faith. And we're told in Revelation 1.5 that Jesus released us from our sins by his blood. Now, Bruce Demarest here uh, states, quote, the focus of of propitiation is Godward. Christ's sacrifice pays the penalty of sin so as to appease God's wrath, but the focus of expiation is manward. He says Christ's sacrifice removes the stain of sin and the sinner's liability to suffer sin's punishment, end quote. So the idea is that when we think about salvation, I've mentioned this before, we should understand that salvation is subtraction. It's actually the removal of sin, that all of our sin was actually taken from us, even the sin that we're going to commit in the future. All sin was taken and placed upon Christ while he was on the cross, and he bore that sin. He bore that sin. So when we think of salvation, we think not only of subtraction, but we think of addition. We think of, uh, we think of the gift of eternal life. We think of the gift of righteousness. We think of those things that make us right with God. But it is both subtraction and addition. Charles Hodge, an older theologian, states, quote, Expiation and propitiation are correlative terms. The sinner or his guilt is expiated. That is, it is removed. It is removed. God or justice is propitiated. That is, God's uh, uh, righteousness is satisfied. He is satisfied only with what Christ accomplished on the cross. That's why the cross is so central to our salvation. Now, propitiation is a word that speaks to our relationship with the Father. You see, he was angry with us prior to our coming to Jesus. Romans 5.10 says that we were enemies of God. Uh, that we were spiritually dead in our trespasses, per Ephesians 2.1. And Ephesians 2.3 calls us children of wrath. So we were not in a good relationship with God. Okay, uh, But now, because of the death of Christ, the Father accepts those who have trusted in Jesus as Savior. And according to Colossians 2.13 and 14, uh, has forgiven us all our transgressions. Has forgiven us all our transgressions. And this is really uh, sometimes a challenge, I think, for us to really grasp and to lay hold of, uh, that this is a, a truth of Scripture, 
that we are forgiven all of our transgressions. Now, I know, I know that if I sin, I, I, I'm never in danger of forfeiting my relationship with God. That's impossible. What I, what I break is fellowship with the Father. I grieve and or quench the Holy Spirit, but the relationship is is never threatened. It is never threatened. And so uh, we are forgiven all of our trespasses, God having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. But again, when we think of expiation, we should think of the actual removal of sin uh, from us and that it was placed on Christ and judged. Here, citing from uh, R.B. Thien Jr. Uh, from his Bible Doctrine Dictionary, he says, quote, Expiation describes the work of Christ on the cross that canceled mankind's debt owed for the penalty of sin. Man's penalty for sin is spiritual death, total separation from God. This is the status of every human being at birth due to Adam's fall. Uh, theme goes on. He says, The penalty placed all fallen humanity hopelessly in debt to God and incapable of paying the obligation. You see, we could not pay the sin debt that we owed. We can produce sin. We are quite apt uh, uh, to produce sin. Uh, but we cannot deal with sin. We cannot, we cannot fix the problem of sin. God had to fix the problem of sin. God had to do it. We messed it up. God had to fix it, and he fixed it at the cross. That's what that is, okay? So the penalty placed on all fallen humanity, hope, uh, placed all fallen humanity hopelessly in debt to God and incapable of paying the obligation. You see, we have to realize that we are utterly helpless to fix the problem of sin. The only one qualified, theme goes on to say, the only one qualified to pay was Jesus, the lamb without sin. He bore our sins in his body on the cross and was judged by God the Father. Theme closes out. He says, Jesus Christ himself covered the cost of man's spiritual death and canceled out the certificate of debt. As a result, every human being is released from obligation and free to accept or reject the grace gift of salvation. End quote. So you see, by God dealing with sin and by actually removing sin, by actually judging it in the person of Christ on the cross, and we're going to talk about the doctrine of imputations here uh, in a few weeks, but understanding expiation is, again, the understanding that God has actually removed sin. Again, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and thus this allows us uh, as Theme puts it, uh, every human being is released from obligation and is therefore free to accept or reject the grace gift of salvation because the barrier that separated God from man, that is the sin barrier, has been removed. And so we can now come to God. We can now come and receive. Now, as I've said before, what Christ accomplished on the cross is sufficient for all. It is unlimited atonement. What he accomplished on the cross is sufficient to save every human being. But the benefits of the cross are only applied to those who believe. The benefits of the cross are only applied to those who believe. And so for those who reject Christ as Savior, they are rejecting the only way 
uh, to have eternal life because Jesus is the way. He's the only way. And, uh, and that makes a Christianity and really a relationship with God exclusive through the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, well, we finished on time. Expiation wasn't uh, too hard to get through. Um, but hopefully you understand eternal life a little bit better. And hopefully you understand the term expiation a little bit better. Now, we will hit these again in the future. I assure you this will be unpacked uh, more in the future and even chased a few rabbit trails. So how's that? So next week when we pick up, we're going to talk about faith. And, uh, and this is, uh, is going to be a good study. In fact, I may spend the whole evening talking about faith. I'm not sure. Uh, but do we have any questions over tonight's study? Any questions over tonight's? John T. John T. Yes, John T. I have a suggestion for you for the mechanical. Um, because on Mark 4, 28, you're talking about that parable where the plant grows and the farmer doesn't know how. Mm-hmm. And the Greek word there is automate, which is or word automatic, and and I think uh, automatic is probably the term you were searching for. I'm <laughs> guessing, but I wanted to throw that out there. I love that, John. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's uh, because the word mechanic really almost sounds cold, doesn't it? And I'm and I'm and I'm trying to avoid that that language that communicates that it is cold because it's it's not it it's more than that. But automatic may be a good way to do it. I like the idea of the sowing and reaping. Uh, because there's something automatic about that that happens, um, you know. And if we just simply by faith live it out, uh, it will manifest itself. You know, it will bear fruit in time. So anyway, love that, John. Thank you for that. Yep. Anybody else have any questions or comments? Uh, any suggestions on improving some of the language there? All right. And uh, Susan, you had a question or a comment? No a comment. Um... I studied under Colonel Theme for a lot of years, and I know, you know, he used the word mechanics, and I know it sounds cold, mm-hmm. but sometimes it's comforting. It's like mathematics. Yes. Mathematics is, there's no emotion with the mathematics. It either is or it isn't. Mm-hmm. And so what Theme always taught was that the Christian way of life cannot be done by an unbeliever. Right, I would Even if that. they're running around doing wonderful things in everybody's eyes, including their own, mm-hmm. it's not. It has. It's. It's human. It's human good. Human works. Right. The only way that the believer can do good works is through the Holy Spirit. So that's why at the judgment seat, when all those people who are unbelievers stand there and say, "But look at all the great things I did," mm-hmm. and they were. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we know of people who have done wonderful things. However, they were not done in the Spirit. They were not in the family of God. Right. They were not in fellowship with God. So they don't count, and they get thrown out. They're no good. And so if it's human works, then those are only as good as filthy rags. Mm-hmm. If it's good works done in the power of the Holy Spirit when we're filled when we're in fellowship, those works count towards our reward. Very well said. Thank you. I agree. I agree with that. And I remember listening to the colonel talk about that one time on occasion. And I think I remember him saying something to the effect that if the unbeliever can do it, it's not the Christian life. Yeah, that's right. I remember that very much so, yes. So, and of course, he had an apt way of saying things like that, and I love that about him. Oh, he did. 
Um, yeah, he yeah. was quite a character, but uh, yes. was he fabulous. Uh, yes, sure. brilliant, and could very much articulate brilliant. these uh, these concepts. So oh I appreciate gosh, you yeah. bring. I appreciate you stating that. I think I think that was said very very well. And uh, thank you. Yep, yep. Thank you for that. that that's enlightening. Okay. Thank you, Miss Susan. Said very well. Oh, thank you. Alright, do we have any other questions or comments this evening? Alright, well, why don't we wrap it up with a word of prayer, shall we? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for this time of fellowship together, for the things that um, that you revealed to us through your word. And uh, the things that uh, we have come to learn over time through gifted teachers, through whom you have communicated, through whom you have revealed certain things that have been uh, written down or communicated for our benefit. And Father, we are thankful most of all for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who came into this world and took upon himself humanity, who lived an absolutely righteous life and who went to a cross and died a death he did not deserve in order that we might have a life that we can never earn. And Father, we thank you for this um, uh, time of fellowship together as those who have trusted in Christ as our Savior, believing that he died for us, was buried and raised again on the third day, never to die again. And Father, we pray as we go forth this evening uh, that we will be challenged by these things, Father, that we might integrate it into our thinking and apply it to our life on a daily basis. Father, we thank you. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well.